Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's new culture podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, I'm culture editor of the New Statesman, and who are you? I am Kate Mossman, I'm arts editor of the New Statesman. Excellent. In the course of editing the magazine, Kate and I come across all sorts of interesting stuff, and because the office is often so glacially silent, we don't get much of a chance to chat about it. So this podcast is now our sort of safe space to do that in. Our remit is, I suppose, as wide as the magazine, so we're going to be covering everything from books and film and television to theatre and art and pop music. I suppose our interests and ages mean that there might be a disproportionate amount of pop music. And, and also a focus on the 1990s, apparently, yeah. judging by last week's. I think, I think that's going to be a fair assumption. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to be talking about So this, this week we're going to be talking about the new Netflix series, The Confession Tapes, and also about the return of Tricky. And we're going to have the third, the second, sorry, <laughs> in our non-anniversary series, which explores non-anniversaries of non-culturally relevant events. So The Confession Tapes is out now on Netflix. It's being billed as something of a follow-up to Making a Murderer. It's a true crime documentary series investigating cases in which people convicted of murder claim that their confessions were coerced out of them somehow and that they are, in fact, innocent. People don't ever want to believe that someone would confess to a crime they didn't do. I don't know any detail because I don't believe I did it yet. But it happens all the time. You're going to confess to setting this woman on fire. And you didn't do it? No way. I want to apologize to the family for what I've done. He confessed he's going to prison. Isn't that the way it works in America? I feel that there are broadly two kinds of crime documentaries coming out of America. There's a series on Netflix called The Forensic Files, which is like the the comfort food of uh, crime documentaries. It's narrated by a very strange guy. It's 22 minutes per episode. And every single episode starts with colleagues were worried when Stacy did not show up for work. And it goes like that, and Stacy's been found dead in some horrible position in her flat, and in the course of the next 22 minutes we see the crime being solved, usually because of some amazing DNA swab or something like that. So, so they're always solved. They're always right. solved, and the, the effect that it has on you watching it is it frightens you and then it comforts you. So right. it's kind of a very simple, cathartic process watching these things. 
And then there's the whole other world of crime documentaries from, you know, Making a Murderer to the confession tapes to the incredible Paradise Lost, the film made about the West Memphis Three, which is about 14 hours documentary that made in the 1990s, which just exposes the relentless labyrinthine ludicrousness of the American legal system and leaves you feeling, I don't know, how, how did you feel after watching this, Tom? Uh, it's profoundly depressing. It presents such a bleak vision of a justice system. And I think we're wired more to fit in with those comfort food documentaries that you, you described as in our brains want sort of justice at the end of a narrative. And even in this, towards the end of each episode, you still hope and expect that, that things will click into place at the end. But I suppose what's so horrifying about it is that the lengths the police will go to extract confessions out of people who, well, we, we were talking about this earlier, they either know are innocent and they simply want to pin the crime on them or are too lazy to follow up all the other leads, or they're so stupid that they can't see beyond this person. And both of those are kind of equally frightening. Mm. It's a two-part of the first episode of this, it's almost feature length. Two teenage boys who are still in prison, convicted of murdering one of the boys' entire family. On a night when they went out to the cinema, to restaurants, to clubs, their alibis are completely watertight. They were seen by lots and lots of people. And they were essentially pursued by the police, because, partly because there were no other leads, and partly because... The police didn't like their arrogance and their apparent lack of emotion after they had found these bodies. And this reminded me very much of the, the West Memphis Three murders where three teenage boys were sent to prison for life in Arkansas, convicted of a satanic ritual child murder. This was the idea behind it. Basically, one of the teenagers had an arrogant attitude, didn't show any emotion in court, and happened to read a lot of Alistair Crawley as well and listen to Metallica. So this kind of backwater judge thought, well, you know, you're probably influenced by heavy metal and you're quite clever and I don't like the look on your face. So that becomes the motivating force. And these legal cases stretch on for 10 years because they're desperate to prove it. And explain to us the technique that they use in this in the first episode of this. Yeah, so it's these two kids, Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay. The murder happens in 1994. They're 18, I think. And it's quite complicated. But basically, because they're Canadian citizens, it, this ends up despite the fact that the murder happened in the US, it ends up getting investigated by the Mounties. They're obviously the Canadian version of the FBI, but I still can't imagine them not in those <laughs> hats on horses. But they have this special technique called Mr. Big, where they train, you know, they have a couple of highly trained officers who impersonate a sort of cr crime mobster figure who over quite a long period of time gets to know these these guys through incredibly sort of convoluted means of like accidentally pulling up next to them in a parking lot, whatever, and uh, then tries to implicate them in his sort of crime world. And through that, tries to get them to fess up to this thing that they're supposed to have done. And it works amazingly, despite the fact that these... Mr. Big characters are so unconvincing. They're talking like, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't get past the door at an audition, at, you know, any kind of, not even a sort of low-rate American... I think you see him at one point, it looks like he's got a clip-on ponytail. He, he's wearing this ridiculous sort of Hawaiian shirt, he's got a clip-on ponytail, he says things like, 
you don't fuck me and I don't fuck you. And it's, it's, it's just... But they're, not, they're not crimes, they're opportunities. Yeah. But like, obviously these boys, you know, as I think one of them says at one point, you know, brought up on films like Goodfellas, they do get suckered into this. And they end up so unconvincingly confessing to this guy that they've done this crime. And the word that is used a disproportionate amount of times in the, the show, which I really like, is braggadocio. Yeah. Uh, and they bring on a braggadocio expert. <laughs> a guy who's an expert in these Mr. Big cases, who talks about just how easy it is to get into that situation where you can make people exaggerate to such an extent what they've done. My favourite bit is when um, Mr. Big's saying sort of, you know, he's kind of, it's illogical really, because Sebastian Burns has finally confessed to this thing he didn't commit. Yeah. And, and Mr. Big goes, so why was there no blood in your clothes? And Sebastian Burns goes, uh, and you can tell he's just plucking it out the air. Yeah. He goes, because I did it naked. <laughs> And then, and then Mr. Big goes, wise move, wise yeah, move. Smart and, then, and then Sebastian interrupts him and goes, but I had pants on. <laughs> so if that's not a sign of the fact this is a teenage boy making something up and then feeling, feeling a bit embarrassed because he doesn't want Mr. Big to imagine him naked. What I thought was really sinister in this entire series was that there's a sense that the coercion methods are being instantly adapted to the perceived intelligence of the person yeah. that they want to get into prison. And in the case of Sebastian Burns and Atif, there was this um, the line one of the policemen said, they were bright kids, so traditional police methods were not going to work. And the idea of, of thinking that way but traditional police methods should be the right methods yeah so if you're going to sort of think oh this guy reads Nietzsche therefore I'm going to and these boys had lost everything so there, there was no consideration for the fact that one of them's family was dead and of course you are I think they just graduated somebody points out that they were not employable because this sort of stink of this crime was following them around of course they're going to start doing some odd jobs here and there for someone who's sort of pushing them into it. And there was a second episode that we saw, the case of Wesley Myers, who was a guy in South Carolina, who is a totally different story, very much a kind of ordinary guy, hunting, shooting, fishing in a baseball cap. He's been, uh, I think he's still under house arrest for a crime that he didn't commit. He spent, what, 20 years in prison, was it? I think the crime was... 97. 97. Yeah, yeah. And in his case, it's uh, it's definitely not the Mr. Big technique that's used. It's something more akin to gaslighting. It's really, the guy was quite a heavy drinker. He's brought in and he is put under this interview for several hours. And the guy who's interviewing says, starts to say things like, well, we're not going to give you a lie detector test today because I can see your energy's dropping. I can see you're, you know, you're, you're fading. And he says, well, are you sure you didn't kill her? Because you do pass out when you get drunk. And just this sort of spooky sense of him being physically drained of energy by the, the methods of the interviewer. And yeah, he, he was interrogated for something like 20 hours over three days. One of the, the best things about this documentary is that they've got completely unfettered access to these interrogation tapes. I, apart from, I think, in one case where a message comes up on the screen saying no recording survives. But most of the time you see it all. And this one is so uncomfortable. You can see this guy gradually falling apart. And the t detective's trying to say to him, you know, we've all got problems with our women. And he's, at one point he says, we've all been at the point where we've wanted to choke the living snot out of a wife, mm. which is sort of both semi-comical and just so horrible Yeah, that it knocked me for six that. And you can see this guy just being absolutely ground down. And 
he's quite a sweet guy in yeah. a way. So they don't have the problem of playing to kind of a, a super high intelligence, but they just locate his sort of odd little moral compass and and, and go for it. And also it was a classic, the, the reason he got out of prison at the end was he actually accepted a charge of manslaughter. So you have to lie in order to get out of prison. With the West Memphis Three, they, it was a similar thing. They, I think it was, what, second degree murder or something. And they got out because they'd actually confessed to it. So it's almost just like sort of a sense of satisfaction for the <laughs> the cops at the end of the day. It's a funny series because you associate Netflix with binge watching and this is not something you could binge watch because it's too relentless and basically every story is the same. So unless you're some absolute glutton for that kind of uh, grim feeling at the end of these um, false convictions, then you're not going to, you're going to do it in instalments, presumably. Yeah. What did you think of the way it was presented, the way it was it was put together because it is so different from I know you, you haven't seen Making a Murderer um, but that was took 10 years to make and and plays out over 10 hours so they do have to compress quite a lot in these don't they? Mm, I thought it was effective the way in the um, second episode of the, the one about the two teenagers the boys voices were kept entirely out of the first one so they were they were these kind of almost mysterious characters and it did play into that idea of them being quite cold and cynical and possibly slightly aloof and then the second episode it starts with a teeth from jail talking extremely eloquently down the phone to the producer of the show and I just thought that was quite effective the only thing I wondered about it is that there are these sort of odd gaps in the story that sometimes you feel like they haven't they either haven't got their interviewee to fully explain the sequence of events or it's too complicated and you're suddenly left with one of these intertitles that just says something like, 10 years later, this happens. And you have to sort of pause it and, and go, hang on a minute. What, you know, he didn't get out or he had to wait nine years? or is Because as you were saying the other day, it's not fashionable to do voiceovers now. Yeah. So if, they, if they're not going to have a guiding voice, then they suddenly just have to do a black screen with a bit of, you know, yeah. white writing on it. And you think, what happened there? But it is recommended, but in moderation. That's um, the confession tapes out on Netflix now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The rapper and producer Tricky is just about to release his 13th album. It's out on September the 22nd. It's called Ununiform. It's coming out on False Idols K7 Music. And before we talk about it, let's just listen to a clip from one of the tracks featuring Scriptonite. This is Blood of My Blood. So the reason Tricky is particularly interesting to me is that in 1995, his debut album, Max and Cray, made a huge impact on me and lots of other people, really because it didn't sound like anything else being produced at the time. It was part of this sort of ill-advisedly named genre trip-hop. At that point, the biggest kind of crossovers you had were, that I'd come across anyway, were, you know, you'd have dance acts like The Prodigy using a bit of guitar in one of their songs. Whereas this record merged things in such a way that you couldn't actually work out what the original components were. There was funk in there, there were strings in there, there were kind of discombobulated samples, strange pitches moving in and out, very, very dark and and unsettling, very, very stone sounding. You've only just listen to it because I played you a couple of tracks earlier today what did you make he was well growing up he was a he was more of a kind of a presence than somebody that I listened to he was a a frightening face he was a a portal into this adult world of stoning and sitting around in flats in Bristol and I was listening to Queen at the time so he's uh, there's a I I was thinking this this idea of this musical modernism that he developed Mm. and there's not a single record that would win the Mercury Award now that doesn't have that element mm. of not being one single genre. Everything has jazz in it. Everything has a bit of dubstep influence, hip hop influence, and all blended together in a way that you can't, you know, it's interesting because you we, we expect that now. That's the dominant sound in music is that, yes. um, yeah, that hard to pin down, very atmospheric, very kind of intellectual sort of music making. And it was just interesting going back to him and listening and thinking how ahead of its time it was. And it reminds me of a great thing that Tracy Thorne said in a piece she wrote for us about Cool Britannia. She remembered being at the Brit Awards, I think the year that Oasis and Blur were pitted against each other in that very public battle. And she was on a table with Martina Topley-Bird, Tricky, Bjork, people like that. And she Goldie was thinking, as well, yeah. Goldie. And she was thinking, yeah. this, this is the most interesting table. This is where the stuff's happening. But the dominant narrative of that period in the 90s was this very white... I think Burhan in his great profile of Tricky describes it as a extrovert music and this was the music of the introverts and now introvert music kind of dominates something like the Mercury Award. Absolutely yeah we, we should say that there's a great long profile by Burhan Wazir of Tricky in the magazine this week and Burhan spent a day in Berlin with Tricky 
and Berlin is where he lives now. He's had this sort of odd peripatetic lifestyle, having grown up in the Northwest neighborhood of Bristol, tough upbringing, father left before he was born, mother who was epileptic, committed suicide when he was four years old. His first record is very much a kind of strange love letter to his mother. And he had an early association with Massive Attack and then met Martina Topley Bird, who at the time was sort of 15 or 16, just doing her GCSEs, sitting on a wall near his house singing. And as legend has it, that's where he bumped into her and um, they ended up having a relationship and making music together. Curiously, he didn't win the Mercury that year. It was, it was mm. Portishead who won it um, that year, and he didn't win the he didn't win a Brit either. He was up for something like four Brit. Awards. He's still a bit bitter about it. He is still bitter about it. Isn't <laughs> he, he said, yeah. "If I won a Mercury now, someone else would have to go and pick it up." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he would win a Mercury now, yeah. as you were saying. There's a great story in Burns' profile about him going for a drink in a pub with someone in London, and these four guys in suits are kind of eyeballing him across the room. And he goes mental and he's like, what the hell are you looking at and stuff? And they were just looking at him thinking, is that tricky? And it kind of, I don't know, that says something to me about his, a weird sort of modesty and a weird outsiderdom that he's he's still got. That he's sort of, we were saying earlier, he could have become a kind of a Trevor Horn or a Mark Bronson figure. And he's sort of still slightly on the sidelines. He's living in Berlin because it's easy to to work creatively there without much money and stuff. And it's just a nice sense of somebody who... Maybe their personality didn't quite lend itself to huge fame or anything. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's an, it was an interesting career trajectory because that record was so critically acclaimed. I think he was signed to Ireland. There was tons of money behind him. He made sort of three or four records. Had uh, uh, Interest was starting to wane. He, he had one last go with this album in which he roped in sort of members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Cindy Lauper and people like that <laughs> as a kind of stab at the commercial big time. And it just it just didn't quite happen. And I think, you know, he moved around. He's, he's always been an insanely heavy marijuana smoker. And there are, there are a couple of nice stories in, in the profile, you know, at, at the point where he was most in demand, people like um, Alanis Morissette and Madonna were knocking on his door trying to get him to produce albums for them and you know he leaves Madonna in his hotel lobby waiting because he basically <laughs> can't be bothered to get out of bed <laughs> you know, so. I mean yeah there's a, a point you made earlier that actually you can be that chaotic if you're a band member when you have a manager looking after you and a producer but you can't be that person and, and be a producer can you because you you it's all about timekeeping it's mm. all about organization so maybe mm. maybe that didn't help in terms of his wider opportunities he just had and still has a fundamentally strange mind <laughs> and and that's one of the things that really appealed to me about that first record Maxim Quay is one song opens with the line I think the place where I stand gives way to liquid lino beneath the weeping willow lies the weeping wino <laughs> I mean for something that's supposed to come from sort of a hip-hop tradition this was sort of more like weird beat poetry. Mean, it's more yeah. like sort of Ginsberg best minds of my generation stuff um, <laughs> he sounds very, very like odd. he's um possibly mellowed a little bit as mm. well it's sweet in the in the profile that he you know instead of starting on four guys in suits he's actually chatting to people who come up to him and he likes to go and have a beer and sit outside a cafe and people watch <laughs> he describes london as being like it has no exterior life it's literally just work pub home mm. and of course you know we all know people who've moved to berlin to pursue exactly 
the kind of lifestyle that he's got. And, you know, if they don't go to Berlin now, they go to Margate. As if, but as if Tricky has ever been work, pub, home. I, I mean, I thought that was a slightly <laughs> ludicrous comparison, actually. There's I, a great quote somebody says that um, he shouldn't be a musician. He should be employed as one of those guys in the US Army who blows up bridges and leaves nothing behind him. <laughs> <laughs> this new record, there, there are a few kind of nods to Max and Quay in it, but it's very, it reminded me a little bit of, do you remember that record, Gil Scott Heron made mm. with Richard Russell, is it, from from XL Records when they yeah. were trying to kind of reactivate Gil Scott Heron's career and he did that kind of Rick Rubin trick of, of really paring him down and yeah. just doing very minimalist beats and and that's the feel of, of this record to me. Um, it's quite sparse. Yeah, there's um, a lot of space in it. As mm. our editor would say, there's a lot of air. <laughs> there is, yeah. <laughs> Having a lot of air means fewer words and more pictures. <laughs> and, and, and I think... Um, while you know the imagery early on in his in his uh, records was baroque almost the lyrics are very very pared back they're kind of but there's still loads of different guest slots aren't there yeah so as a kind of it is a bit of a you know it's a cast of many characters the way yeah interestingly for anyone who loved that first record martina topley bird is back collaborating with him for the first time in 15 years on record i actually saw them perform together in 2012 they did a they did a show at Sundance uh, festival in London the London version of Sundance um where they performed the whole of Max and Quay and it was one of the most painful gigs I've ever seen in my How life come? it was a room full of people who absolutely adore this record adore Tricky adore Marti- Martina Topley Bird and he just sort of pissed all over it <laughs> you know she was left basically holding the fort while he sort of ambled on and off got his sort of weird cousin to come on and like rap over her, you know, abandoned songs halfway through. It was it was so chaotic, but not in a good way. It just, you really felt like she was being stood up. So yeah. I'm kind of surprised she's she's working with him again. But Apparently they mainly communicate by text. Yeah, they do have a daughter together. Yeah, right? that's so they, true. <laughs> they, they, they have to communicate. So that's Ununiform by Tricky, the new album. And I think we'll play out with The Only Way from that album. It's our second non-anniversary, which is very exciting. Non-anniversary, as Kate explained at the beginning, is it a non-anniversary or is it an actual anniversary? Uh, it's a loose anniversary. It's a loose anniversary. About something that we don't really care about. It's something that would never get a Guardian long read marking its existence, basically. Something of, of, uh, of limited cultural importance. What have we got today? We've got Breakfast at Tiffany's by Deep Blue Something, which um, ruled the airwaves for... It seems like for most of my childhood, that was, it was like that in the 90s, wasn't it? There'd be certain songs like Lisa Loeb's song as well. Do you remember that? I Miss You. Yes. Um, Joan Osborne, If God Was One of Us, Desiree. Those yes. things were on the radio every three songs. Mm. And this was one of those things. And it's earned the accolade from VH1 as the most awesomely bad song ever. Which you think is unfair? I think it's unfair. I think I remember when I first heard this, I thought, wow, what a piece of realism. <laughs> because I thought, me and my friend were sitting on the bus and we said to each other, this must have happened. How would you come up with that line otherwise? <laughs> Which, of course, to remind listeners is that... 
it's a, a girl who's trying to break up with the boyfriend and he's saying, she says, we've got nothing in common. And he says, um, but we both liked breakfast at Tiffany's. And she says in a kind of meh way, yes, well, that's the one thing we've got. And it was just like, it just seemed to epitomize that really depressing moment when a relationship's ending and it's just flat. It's not even dramatic. It's just flat. When you put it like that, it sounds like a kind of Raymond Carver short story. Well, I, I was looking on Wikipedia for some um, some depth behind the writing process and some of the, the backstory, and there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> what it does have, listening back to it now, is that irrepressibly jangly mid-90s sound that just instantly evokes friends. Yeah. Nothing else, just friends. And a video sort of recorded outside Central Park in those lovely saturated 90s colours where they're, they're like riding horses for no reason and things like that. The thing that I always found irritating about it and what I suspect would make the girlfriend want to kill the guy singing it is that the way that the song's structured, the chorus always comes in and I said, what about, as if he's just literally hammering her with this <laughs> one point. Man Every time. Every time they're trying to have a conversation about their relationship, he just goes straight back in there with this one, you know, monomaniacal, maniacal idea. I think when we first heard it, we didn't even know Breakfast at Tiffany's was a film. So, you know, for us, that was our first our first introduction to the whole concept. Well, 21 years ago this week, that was number one. And I think it soundtracked both our journeys to school for, for a good month or two, didn't it? Well, longer than that. Yeah. If you've got any suggestions for a non-aversary, please do tweet me uh, at Tom underscore Gatti or the NS podcast account at NS underscore podcasts. Or indeed, if there's anything you want us to cover in the show, uh, please do get in touch. This has been The Back Half. We'll be back with you in two weeks' time and we're leaving you with Godspeed by Pistol Jazz. <laughs> <laughs>